You've survived another week, and I survived the flu. But I'm back, funkier and fresher than ever. Welcome to the Urban Shooter Podcast, episode number 59. Welcome to the Urban Shooter Podcast, the podcast for law-abiding, fun-loving gun owners of the city. This show features how-tos, news, and political views on what's happening around the world and in your city related to the sports of shooting and protecting what's important to you. Your host is known as the black man with a gun. He's a former U.S. Marine, federal firearms instructor, private investigator, counter-terrorist, public speaker, and web personality. He's been featured in two documentaries, Fox News, the BBC, the Washington Business Journal, Washington Times, Wall Street Journal, and here he is now. To give power to the people, Ken Blanchard. Quiet, numbskulls, I'm broadcasting. Well, I gotta, I gotta tell you the truth. This show is a little late, and I know you noticed, but the flu took me out, brothers and sisters. I'm telling you, it was a rough one. I had the head flu, the chest flu, the stomach flu, and the only place I didn't have the flu was my big toe. And then once the flu was gone... I caught bronchitis, and then that slowed me down, and I just got rid of that today. So just when it's over, I'm back, back on the mic. And I want to say thank you to all those who sent me emails, and that's become my new way of communication. I mean, the phones are ridiculous because I have like three different lines. I can't answer any of them. I'm being pulled three different ways, and email is the only time I have to myself. So if you really want to contact me, hit me at blackmanwithagun at gmail. Dot com, And in that, I got some thank yous. I want to tell um, Ray in England. Thank you, man, for taking the time to talk to me. And we're going to hear from Ray next week. Logan in Lakewood, Colorado. I appreciate you, bro. Cliff, Dustin of Dustin's blog. Thanks, man. Jeff, Ted, got to get you on soon, man. Eric, I appreciate the jokes, man. Don't stop it. Wayne, my big fan, I thank you, man, for being there for me. David, William, Alan, and Ken and P.A. Your boy is back. This week, we're going to talk about things in the city. We have a confession in the city. We have some court stuff if you're coming to the city to help you out. And all things pertaining to the city. This week in the city, Governor of New York, the capital of all cities, was busted for having a liaison with a professional escort. Client number nine wasn't alone, of course, but he's the only one in the hot seat right now. Politicians, prostitution, prognostication, and paper is no stranger to the nation's capital. But what really has happened in D.C. right now is that folks, married and single, are questioning the cost of sex. I heard two ladies in the cafeteria the other day say, $5,000? I'd do it for 50. I know we're in a recession. Gas prices are going up to $4 a gallon. My property taxes are going out out the window. And all of that is going up. But have you ever heard of a five-diamond hooker before this happened? I started talking like Chris Rock when I heard this story. $5,000! Well, because of that, I'm sitting in the lobby of the Renaissance Mayflower Hotel. And if you want to stop by and see the joint where there are five diamond hookers sometimes or where FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover ate his lunch for 20 years or 
where the rich and famous come for $5,000 snacks. Is it the Renaissance Mayflower Hotel located on 1127 Connecticut Avenue, Northwest? And uh, if you want to ride the metro to get here, it's the Farragut North Metro Stop. May I help you, sir? How much for an order of ribs? Uh, two fifty. Two fifty. How many ribs do I get with that? Uh, about five. Five. So I guess that's about fifty cents a rib, huh? Yeah, about. Okay, let me get one. Right on. One order. One order of ribs. No, 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 no. One rib. One rib. I sure am hungry. Uh, make that one rib to go. One rib? One rib. What else? You got any soda? One dollar. Oh, come on now. Look out for a brother, man. Come on. Hey, take this out. Why don't you let me get a sip for 15 cents? My cups cost more than 15 cents. All right, because pouring in my hand for a dime. Look, you greasy-headed Jerry Curl Wan. Pay me and get the hell out of my store. You got change for a hundred? I'd like to read you some excerpts from U.S. News and World Report, March 17th, 2008 edition. And uh, not a bad article. There's a few uh, issues in here that uh, I disagree with, and you probably will too. But otherwise than that, the truth parts are truth parts. And this is from Emma Schwartz of U.S. News and World Report. For all the passion on both sides of the Second Amendment debate, the Supreme Court has said remarkably little over the years about to whom the right applies. Specifically, the amendment states that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. For most of American history, courts have interpreted the Second Amendment to apply to the collective right of the states to assemble groups of armed citizens. Nine federal circuit courts have upheld that position, and the Supreme Court favored it when it last considered the issue in a 1939 case. But in the past few decades, more and more legal experts have supported the position that the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to have guns. Although they remain in the minority, proponents include some noted liberal scholars, including Harvard University law professor Lawrence Tribe and Yale University law professor Akil Reed Amar. At the core, their reasoning is simple. Most other freedoms granted by the Bill of Rights, such as free speech, have been widely interpreted as protecting an individual right. Therefore, the Second Amendment should be treated no differently. After a federal appeals court upheld the individual right argument in 2001, the Justice Department, under then Attorney General John Ashcroft, shifted its policy in favor of the individual right. Emboldened, millionaire legal activist Robert Levy, a scholar at the Libertarian Cato Institute, bankrolled a group of lawyers to target the D.C. handgun ban in court. They lined up half a dozen residents as plaintiffs, including Heller, and sued. Heller's claim is the only one that has survived. 
if you've been listening to the Urban Shooter podcast, you know that originally it had the name of my friend, Shelley Parker. The D.C. law, like laws in Chicago and New York City, doesn't explicitly bar handguns. It requires that all residents register them with the city. Since the city stopped registering handguns in 1976, no one who hadn't registered by then can have a handgun at home. The result, effectively, is a ban. D.C.'s law also bars residents from keeping any other firearm, such as a rifle or shotgun, loaded or assembled. It is the combination of these restrictions, among the most severe in the nation, that has made the D.C. law vulnerable to challenges by individuals claiming a right to self-defense. The NRA wrote in a court brief, Had Americans in 1787 been told that the federal government could ban the frontiersman in his log cabin or the city merchant living above his store from keeping firearms to provide for and protect himself and his family, it is hard to imagine that the Constitution would have been ratified. That's pretty good. The city says that the ban is necessary to protect public safety. We know different. It argues that the text of the Second Amendment, beginning as it does with a reference to militias, makes it clear that the freedom guaranteed by the amendment is only a collective one. Just how much of an impact the Supreme Court decision will have on the gun debate depends in large part on how the court frames it. There is also a chance that any decision may not apply directly to the states because D.C. is not a state. A ruling upholding only a collective right to bear arms would come as a blow to gun rights advocates who have long used the individual's rights argument to rally support against control laws. If the court embraces an individual right to bear arms, the result is less clear. A big question is how far that freedom extends. In the past, the Supreme Court has recognized a government's ability to limit or regulate nearly every constitutional right. The freedom of speech, for instance, does not extend to shouting fire in a crowded theater. It's a position the Bush Justice Department appeared to recognize when, in supporting individual gun rights, it cautioned the Supreme Court against defining that right so broadly that it effectively restricted the government's ability to place limits on gun ownership. Such a ruling, the Justice Department said, could invalidate existing federal laws, including the machine gun ban. But a ruling in favor of a restricted individual right, one that allowed some government regulation of guns, could, paradoxically, do more harm than good to the gun rights lobby. An endorsement of individual rights would come as a moral victory. But support of restrictions could represent a loss. It could tacitly uphold most of the gun control legislation across the country. Skipping over a few things, talks about the candidates. The Democrats learned the perils of reviving the gun control issue during the 2000 presidential campaign when candidate Al Gore pledged to limit handgun sales, crack down on gun shows, and support state registration of firearms. It was a liberal position that some think cost him the vote in a few southern pro-gun states, including his home state of Tennessee. For many Democrats, the lesson was clear. Gun control was a losing and consuming issue. You can talk about guns or you can talk about everything else, says Dane Strother, a Democratic media consultant. If you start talking about guns, everyone bridles, be it pro-gun or anti-gun. You'll never make it to health care. 
You'll never make it to the economy. That's interesting, huh? In the 2008 presidential campaign, neither Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama has talked much about gun control. Both Democratic candidates have endorsed the idea of tracking down illegal guns, but both have dropped their one-time support for licensing gun owners and registering new guns. In the 2008 presidential campaign, neither Hillary Clinton nor Barack Obama has talked much about gun control. Both Democratic candidates have endorsed the idea of tracking down illegal guns, but both have dropped their one-time support for licensing gun owners and registering new guns. After a Nevada debate in January, Clinton said she would reinstate the assault weapons ban, and Obama vowed to increase access to data that helped trace the origin, the origin of guns used in crimes. But he acknowledged the gun control divide when he said, we essentially have two realities when it comes to guns in this country. We can reconcile those two realities by making sure the Second Amendment is respected and that people are able to lawfully own guns, but that we also start cracking down on the kinds of abuses of firearms that we see on the streets. Yeah, yeah. That was a whole lot of nothing. I don't know what you think of Barack Obama, Senator Hillary Clinton, or Senator John McCain, but I'm not happy with any of our presidential candidates. But this is a democracy, so I got to wait to go with the majority. But it's a scary uh, slate right now. Here's some laws from the beginning. In 1791, the Second Amendment was ratified. In 1934, the National Firearms Act imposes a tax on the sale and transfer of machine guns and short-barreled firearms, including sawed-off shotguns. And this was right after and during the Sullivan Act. Almost every gun legislation we have is a result of a reaction to something and then a boogeyman. Then, 1934, 1935, it was the Italian immigrants. They were feared they were all the mafia, part of La Casa Nostra. They were all part of John Dillinger and Al Capone. 1938, the Federal Firearms Act required federal licensing of gun dealers. 1968, the Gun Control Act. Following the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Again, after reacting and then specifically targeting a group. This was also the era of the civil rights in our country. The Gun Control Act of 1968 also prohibited felons and mentally ill from buying guns and bans the sale of mail-order firearms, including rifles and shotguns. So we've had an act since 1968. There is no loophole. What we have here is politics. 1972, your favorite bureau of alcohol, tobacco, and firearms was created to oversee the regulation of gun sales. And I think it changed somewhere too to bat fee. They put explosives in there too. 1986, the Firearms Owners Protection Act eases some of the gun sale restrictions and bars the government from creating a database of gun dealers' records. The law, which also authorizes sales of guns between private owners, reflect the growing influence 
of the National Rifle Association and the strongly pro-gun Reagan administration. Yay, team. 1993, the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act, named for the press secretary disabled by the attempted assassination of President Ronald Reagan in 1981, requires gun dealers, although not private sellers, to run background checks on purchasers and authorize the creation of a national database. I had the distinct honor of doing a one-on-one debate against Sarah Brady in Annapolis. And, uh, not to pat myself on the back, but, uh, I ain't do too bad. 1994, the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act passed by Democratic Congress bans the sale of new assault weapons for 10 years. 2003, the TIAHRT Amendment, T-I-A-H-R-T, prohibits the disclosure of trace data about guns used in crimes. Following a wave of lawsuits against gun dealers, Congress also protects gun manufacturers and dealers from lawsuits if their guns are used in crime. 2004. The assault weapons ban expires under a Republican-controlled Congress. And of course, she had to put that in here. 2007. After the massacre at Virginia Tech, Congress closes a loophole in the National Instant Criminal Background Check System by requiring states to automate lists of people prohibited from buying firearms, including felons and the mentally ill, and put them in a federal database. As you notice, we are slowly creeping toward getting a lot of personal information in the hands of our government that they already have. Note to self. Watch your A, buddy. Watch your A. And if you're in law enforcement, I'm going to talk about this probably a lot next time, is that anything that happens to you on the job, any stress that you get, anything that you have to go see a shrink or a mental health professional, may bar you from ever owning a firearm again. And if you get fired from your job or if you get let go, guess what record will follow you forever. And even though you might have just had a stress-related incident, uh, family problem, marital issue, you as a LEO, a law law enforcement officer, may become somebody who can never own a gun again. Brothers in blue, sisters in blue, make sure that you watch what's going on in our legislation. Look out for the stuff that's coming down the pike. It will not only hurt your brothers and sisters, it will hurt your family as well. And of course, that brings us up to now. The District of Columbia gun ban now before the Supreme Court is at the center of this whole mess. And if you think the gun ban has worked, it has not. Actually, violence is up 7% from last year. And, uh, This makes D.C. one of the highest per capita murder rates in the country. So if the gun ban is struck down, the district will very likely see an increase in firearms ownership. And I I don't have my calendar with me, but I know that that week that they are also having the argument of the Second Amendment in the District of Columbia in the Supreme Court that the Pope will be in town and he's having mass down at a brand new Nationals baseball stadium um, located in the same area where former Marion Barry um, got pulled over a couple of times for crazy stuff. So you can combine your trip if you're uh, into the Pope 
get some tickets to go to, to the mass that will be held in our new stadium or come to the Supreme Court. Just want you to know that the uh, all the oral arguments are open to the public, but sitting is limited on a first come, first serve basis. And before the session begins, two lines form on the plaza um, in front of the building. And one is for those who wish to attend the entire argument. And the other, a three minute line, is for those who wish to observe the court and session only briefing. Um, don't hold a space in either line for anybody else who hasn't arrived. Is a normal rule there. And seating for the first argument begins at 930. They are usually Monday, Tuesdays and Wednesdays only. And uh, there's plenty of signs. And the Supreme Court actually has their own police department of federal police officers. So don't fool around in there. They are not rental cops and they will take you down with a vengeance. Um, visitors should be aware that cases made like this one is going to probably cause a big crowd and uh, lines are formed before the building opens. So make sure that you trying to get there uh, a little earlier than 930 and get your spot. And if you're with a big group, you might want to line up to the right in the three minute line. You're going to go through a checkpoint and just let you know that firearms and other um, items they deem dangerous or illegal won't be allowed on the grounds or in the building. And you can't take your camera, your radio, your pager, your tape player, your cell phones um, and other electronic equipment, hats, overcoats, magazines and books, briefcases or luggage. And uh, sometimes even sunglasses get snatched out of there. Um, they are pretty strict on what goes through. But they do have a check room on the first floor that you can check your coats and other personal belongings in case you forgot something. And there's like uh, lockers inside for cameras and other valuables. And we don't recommend taking any babies or small children into the courtroom. Just a few tips in case you come to the Supreme Court for the monumental hearing on our right to keep and bear arms. And of course, if you're in the city, I want to say come and call me. I should be there. Um, I got to tell you, my life has took a serious turn into the busy and. Uh, I can't complain because I've had some downtime, but now. My life is not my own. So I may or may not be there with you, but I will try. And if you're in the city. Leave me an email because believe it or not, I'm being pulled so many different ways that I'd rather get a I'd rather read my message while I'm in transit somewhere and then call you back. So send me an email and tell me what's up. Tell me you're in the city. Tell me you you got your party. The gun owners of Cleveland are all here and we're in a hotel somewhere. Then I'll find you and let's do it that way. Or if you say um, there's a big party of us and we're going to be at the Hilton somewhere or maybe you'll be here at the Mayflower Hotel if you got it like that. And uh you're going to check out the Emperor's Club. Call a brother. Let me like Lisa see who you're going in there with. I'm just playing. All right. You know that I am a minister. Well, this is a confession that was sent to me uh, by email. And uh, let me read it to you. It says, um, I have cheated before, Pastor, but not like this. And I, the reason I feel bad is because I really don't feel bad let me explain it all started as an internet affair i saw her ad on a personal site and i was really interested in her 
I asked a few questions and she told me about herself and sent me a pic. Well, that's all I needed. I just had to have her. We talked a bit and then love settled in. She was an immigrant from Italy living on the West Coast. She was new in the country and she needed money. It's complicated, but I started stashing money away for her. I had to hide some money from my wife and it was really difficult. Then, I got the rest of the money through an inheritance when my grandmother died. I know grandmother would want me to do this, so that's why I spent her money on it. Moving on, I sent the money last week and she caught a ride across country. The first time I saw her in person, she was beautiful. She was leaning up against the wall. She was tall, dark, with black hair and a nicely curved butt. She had a really big mouth, not unlike Rachel Ray. She was, in general, a bit heavier than the pics led me to believe. But she really looked good. I was really nervous and excited at the same time. I knew my wife was not going to be happy with me again. After a brief introduction, we were off and I decided we should go to live upstairs in my house. Oh, I decided she was going to live upstairs in my house. We had to stop it to make first, though. I was in love all over again. I put her in the front seat of my truck and we headed off and I couldn't keep my hands off her but she didn't seem to mind. When we got to my secluded spot she was really so ready and so was I. I took my time with her and when she got weird in a good way she asked to have an object put in her breech so I obliged. I started following her more and then she yelled I was shocked. It was a whole new experience for me. And she started smoking. A lot. I knew she was a smoker, but gee, did it have to be this much? Things were okay. It was her first time. She was just really excited. So we did it again a few more times. We were exhausted, so I knew it was time to go home. When we got home, my wife had gone, which was good news for me. I pulled up in the driveway and my neighbor caught us. I introduced her to him and he was really attracted to her too. He mentioned that my wife was going to be really upset when she found out, but I didn't care. I took her in and we were both dirty from our affair. I gave her a hot soapy bath, then thought, time for more fun. I broke out some oil and rubbed it all over her. She looked hot and I got excited again. I took my rod and covered it and... Just tip and just put the tip of her muzzle, see, and then see, I got excited, I couldn't even read this word. She got hot, and I got excited again. I took my rod and covered it, and then put just the tip in her muzzle. It was a tight fit, so I had to be a bit forceful. Then she took it, the whole thing. I didn't have anything left. Then I thought I was inadequate. So, I pulled it out and did the same thing to her breech. She seemed to like it both ways. Then, just as I was finishing, the front door opened and I heard the rustling of grocery bags. Oh no, my wife was home. What was I to do? She walked in the kitchen and caught us. She looked stunned. I could not think of anything to say. My wife then said how much did that thing cost. I got nervous and had to lie. She bought into it and then said I need to cut back on all the immigrants I'm going to bring home. All was okay for now. 
Sure. There have been a few others. A girl from England named Lee E. And a Russian girl named M. Nagant. But a brief encounter with a German. But she wasn't really weird. Oh, but she was really weird. I won't discuss that. But this one I now have is the best of all. An Italian named C. Sharps with measurements of 50-90 and a height of 32 inches. She is the best of all. Alright, be honest. How many of you knew I was talking about rifles from the very beginning? And the rest of you, you just nasty. Your mind is in the gutter. You should be ashamed of yourself. Actually, you're human. Don't you beat yourself up. We're hardwired that way, and that's a good thing. Well, that's it for this week, and I hope I didn't leave you hanging. Next week, we have an interview with a brother from London who is actually South Korean. Interesting stuff coming up on your favorite righteous podcast. This has been Ken Blanchard of the Urban Shooter Podcast, and I am so glad that you're there. If you want to contact me, you can at blackmanwithagun at gmail.com. And until next week, be safe. <laughs>